Welcome to Ask Andy featuring Andrew Redleaf. Today, Chris Bemis will be asking Andy a few questions. Thanks for letting me be a somewhat frequent podcast <laughs> guest and not just an erstwhile quant. By way of introduction, for anybody not recognizing my voice from the last time, my name is Chris Bemis, and I'm here with Andy for another question. And I believe today we're going to talk about fat tails in finance. Yes, it's been something I've been thinking about for a while. You know, I think there's kind of a universal consensus that future stock prices are non-normally distributed with, in particular, a fat left tail, maybe a fat right tail too, but for sure a fat left tail, and index options universally, more or less at all times. Since 87, there's always been sort of left tail skew in index option pricing. What's sort of interesting is that prior to 87, that was not the case, and before indexes dominated the market, quite as much as they did. I think most people thought that individual stocks had fat right tails, that companies got taken over overnight and doubled, but didn't have it. That happened more often than something that halved them, or worse. So a couple of questions. I mean, first, is it true? And second, if it's true, is it a phenomenon of nature or is it a phenomenon of kind of market structure? Is it something that we impose on the world or has the world imposed it on us? Yeah. I mean, that's a huge question. So I think the 87 example is a great one, which for those who aren't steeped in this stuff is this monumental crash largely based on using math incorrectly, which we end up seeing again around the financial crisis with CDOs. But even in intermediate, it's the quant crisis. There too, you see this statement from you know very smart people, the CFO of Goldman saying what they were seeing were 25 standard deviation moves. And if we assume something like a normal distribution, that's like once in 10 to the 100 universes, <laughs> since our universe is only 13 billion years old, or it's like picking out a particle in the entire universe in terms of likelihood. And that's not to say, you know, this is going to your question of, are these phenomena of nature or are they necessarily from humans trading? And I think that's something to tease out. But I think the other overlay on this in terms of our understanding of frequency is oftentimes we're looking at the wrong distribution to, to describe what we're seeing. So when you use the normal distribution, things like a six sigma event, a six standard deviation move are extremely unlikely. But in terms of historical frequency, so like I looked at an index, S&P index, where you should assume that a lot of the idiosyncratic volatility is smoothed out. Six standard deviation moves are almost a million times more likely in the empirical data than they are from the a priori assumption of the distribution. So if you assume that you have a normal distribution and you say, okay, what's the probability I'd see a six standard deviation event? And then you go back in history and you ask how many you'd see, you see a million times more. Of course, it's not a million of them. It's They're infrequent still, but you see a million times more than the theory would otherwise indicate. But if you were to use a better distribution, and this is one of the things I always hammer home to the students I teach in a math finance program, if you use something that has kurtosis and skew in it, something that allows for a little fatter tails, a student T distribution, 
you get something more like 2x. So, you know, empirical frequency is about 2x what you see in the theory. So historical frequency relative to what a student T would say is about 2x. I think there's a lot to tease out there. One, I think we measure things wrongly or we put the wrong framework on top of things. And then I think there's that additional part, which is, is this just what humans do or is this seen in other physical phenomena? But I thought one of the things we looked at the last three years of prices for the Russell, the S&P, the QQQ, and the XLF. And in various periods, we looked at the number of above average days versus the number of below average days. Mm -hmm. And we looked at one and a half standard deviation days, two standard deviation days, two and a half standard deviation days. And my memory, you know, I I was alive for the last three years. (laughs) And I thought that the data would be fairly symmetric. You know, there'd be roughly as many up two and a half days as down two and a half days, and there weren't. But the thing I found most curious, sort of a priori, if you think about, you know, the actual distribution of returns, a bond clearly has left tail skew. You know, almost all the time you're going to get paid back. You're going to get interest in principle. The right side is unambiguously bounded fairly tightly and their occasional default events. And, you know, kind of conversely, I thought with sort of that tech should have, if anything, an opposite profile. I want to run it on the biotech index because, you know, certainly you think about drug development as being kind of a converse of a bond. A lot of failure and occasional huge success. So the hypothesis was that the XLF should show more skew than the QQQ. I think of the three indexes, the way we measured it, XLF showed the least. So they were all, you know, kind of remarkably close, which pushes me to think that what we see in sort of brief samples of time is a manifestation of a systemic noise, if you can say such a thing, that we impose and not the actual underlying phenomenon. Yes, and I I think related to that, if you go back to the statement on corporate bonds, when you look at equity markets, you have this severe undercounting of downside risk. But if you look in credit, hazard rates, so the market's pricing of probability of default, are far higher than a historical frequency of default. So in corporate credit, you know, there is some attempt to price this probability, this, you know, like you mentioned with 87, that fear of the left tail. In corporate credit, there's an absolute overestimation of the frequency of default. So it's almost the case that neither side gets it quite right. Related to to the index question, I wonder to what extent we've been living in a highly market-driven, so like a single-factor-driven market for basically since financial crisis. Through the financial crisis, you have this phenomena of you know, one systematic factor driving the market, which is common in crises. But it actually became more explanatory after the crisis all but abated, perhaps largely from Fed intervention. So this question of the relation between indices and their skew may require some stripping out of the shared market component. Right. It was, I mean, if you think about what might generate skew in a group of stocks, which obviously have a big idiosyncratic component, if they're all 
positively correlated to one systemic factor, and that systemic factor has a skewed distribution, then that would do it. Though post the two financial crises, I'm interested in both the fatness of the tails, but also the asymmetry. Mm-hmm. You know, so the 87 crash was blamed, and I think somewhat correctly, on portfolio insurance. Though the hedging algorithm implied in portfolio insurance would be pretty close to symmetric. Mm-hmm. You know, so so one could have had an explosion. Right. <laughs> which didn't happen. And now, you know, like sort of post-pandemic, historically, we've seen financial crises have had a big element of, you know, being liquidity crises and being a function of a disruption in liquidity. And one can sort of see that might be asymmetric. Though now, you know, like post-pandemic, it seems like a liquidity flood is as likely as a liquidity drought. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I thought, you know, the last three years, including both the spring reaction to the pandemic and the recovery, my anecdotal sense was that we were close to symmetric, but we actually haven't been. Mm -hmm. Do you recall what the breakdown was? Because I would have guessed about the same. Across both of the indices, they're sort of twice the down two and a half. I sent you that chart. Yeah. Down was almost twice up. I think more at the two and a half and a little less at the one and a half end. Yes, you're exactly right. I don't know if you've seen these, but there's these fictitious markets where a psychologist or an economic researcher will pay some graduate students to come play a game. And the game is they have a certain value. Like you are given a dollar worth of value and you know what the coupons are over a fixed amount of time and you know you're going to get something like par at the end and you're playing with other people at the same time. And one of the first findings was that in these games, when you have a decent amount of people playing, it doesn't have to be a lot, like less than 10, you see bubbles happen regularly. Like They're a common feature of what people do because in the setup of all these games, there's a certain value, right? It's not like there's no default. It's not an equity, so it's not you know somewhat arbitrary on forward pricing or anything like that. So it's it's certain, but you still see these bubbles happen. And so since you see bubbles happen, you also see crashes happen. So you see these really quick corrections. And I think maybe that's a feature that you have this momentum on the upside and correction on the downside. Another finding from these fake markets that are created is that when you run the game with the same group more than once, so like you let everybody play, you see the bubbles happen, you see the crash happen. If you run it more than once, you see the same bubbles happen, but they happen sooner and the crashes correct faster. So back to your original question of, are these human phenomena? It seems to be the case that the downside correction, these big moves down and small increments up may be exactly a human phenomena. I wonder a little bit if sort of momentum on the way up 
discontinuity on the way down. If that's a permanent feature driven by some combination of psychological factors, risk aversion, endowment effect, you know, whatever it is that are just impossible for people to unlearn or relearn, is that permanent or is there a state of the world in which, you know, you could have the opposite? Mm -hmm. So to that question, I cannot. Can you think of a market where that is the case? Well, you know, I mean, the last couple of months, almost, Mm. and it goes to, you know, like sort of my liquidity crisis versus liquidity flood. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have commented that there are just no profit takers in anything. And I've been, you know, kind of shocked by like a Goldman. Goldman's gone from, you know, 190 to 290 in the last four or five weeks in, you know, with a couple of chunky upside moves it seems to be the case that what we're seeing is to your point on liquidity flood like a lot of what we're seeing right now is not just a market by itself i'd be a little bit curious you know i don't know how good the price state is etc but in bitcoins move from whatever to forty thousand to thirty two thousand have the up moves been chunkier than the down moves? The downside corrections are steeper. There is a model where you essentially try to say that you could understand this stuff by dilating time. You could say like when things are moving down, it's as if time is moving faster. So it happens over a shorter time window in real time. In the Bitcoin space, it's a similar thing. You still have this real quick correction on the downside, which you could say another way of the downside moves are larger. But there, I mean, you have a market that's not anywhere close to understanding in terms of standard deviations. So I think probably equivalent, but my friend Gary Kohler has always said, you know, people talk about fear and greed, and he says it's just fear. It's either fear of losing money or fear of missing out, Yes. but it's always a strain of fear. If you postulate that fear is contagious... But fear of losing money is more contagious than fear of missing out. Then the downside moves would be faster than the upside moves. I absolutely agree. The incentives align with that description. You're far more likely to be punished by losing more than gaining about the same. You could lose your opportunity to invest if you lose too much, whereas you know if you are ballpark the market, you'll be treated as such. So related to the last time we talked, to what extent, I don't think I have an optimistic view on this, but to what extent do you think an understanding of the participants themselves, so like the owners of a class of a specific asset, contribute to this feature we're seeing? So, you know, over the past 10 years, we've seen more indexing and more consolidation generally you know, to what extent do you think that might contribute to this fat tail phenomenon? Well, one of the things, you know, I'm not sure if this answers the questions, but a few years ago, I thought there was structurally a secular downtrend in, in volatility, that the algorithms don't get scared, that for the most part, you had a phenomenon where their weekly contributions to 401ks. There's that, you know, money flowing in 
and there's a more or less matched supply or the supply could be calibrated to meet that match and you were on autopilot and it was fundamentally stable you know that was one white box letter i have to try and get them all back and burn them because that doesn't (laughs) particularly look right (laughs) now but maybe if you go back to the liquidity drought liquidity flood we're in the midst of a liquidity flood but there's no reason why that shouldn't be somewhat recalibrated over time so that a year from now, we've adjusted and index volatility starts to look like six or eight instead of uh, 20s implied kind of teens realized. So I think an interesting question I would have for you is, what would be an indicator for you that the liquidity flood was abating? Outside, you know, maybe Congress or the Fed saying those words exactly. What things in the market might you see that would indicate that to you? It is, you know, like the question, you know, I've been saying in a number of different fora, you know, both on the one hand, I think this is in many ways the most speculative market I've ever seen. On the other hand, I really don't see any indicator canaries that it's going to change anytime soon. I think the likely script is consumer price inflation starts showing up in the numbers we see. And the Fed needs a very extended period of that happening before they would materially tighten. So I do think it's in no way imminent in terms of Fed tightening. The sort of fiscal stimulus is, even with Democratic control of the House Senate and the White House, this stimulus and the one they'll pass next is probably the last very broad brush you know, the rebate checks aren't going to be a continuous feature. Thinking about the tail question generally, through this pandemic, one thing that I found really interesting is at the outset, we had very tight spreads. I mean, spreads were about as tight as they could get in corporate credit. And then the pandemic hit and the market started pricing this world where everybody's locked up. One of the things that obtained is that the absolute shift, like the parallel shift in spreads, was the same as the daily spread moves during the financial crisis. So like, you know, if it moved 10 bips in the financial crisis, it moved 10 bips in the pandemic at the outset, like an IG credit. But since spreads were so tight, the dilation, like the percent change in spreads, was extremely impactful during this pandemic. So we had this correction that was similar in scale, but irrespective of level. But then we had another phenomenon. So we had you know, the crash, you know, the fat tail on the left side. But one thing that also happened during the pandemic is the correction came faster as well. The right tail, the rebound right. was far quicker than the financial crisis. So we had, you know, to your point of we really are seeing something different in the behavior of left and right tails, but also a feature of liquidity flooding. We absolutely witnessed that over the past nine months. I think the the great anomaly of right now is that the median, the bulk of the high yield market, the spreads are very close to record tights, depending on what you look at and how you measure. Maybe they're not quite there, but they're close, disguised a little bit 
by the stuff that's in default or eminently about to default concentrated in a few sectors. But you have the VIX in the 20s and persistently. So like the recovery in credit spreads, credit spreads would have told you that volatility should have plummeted. Yeah, the cross-asset volatility measure is completely busted. Unless, of course, if we've had an event, you know, similar to 87, where and now the right equity tail is really fat, you know, so that we've got a 22 VIX or 24 VIX because there's a blowout possibility. But, I mean, you still see a fair amount of skew. So I don't have a terminal or anything right now, but do you happen to see more of the right side volatility sloped up as well? So after 87, you see the left side is up. I don't have a terminal either. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, they used to talk about a smile. Yes. It's more like a smirk. I don't remember it ever really being a smile. Yeah, I would be curious if some of that shows up now. I would think people are too afraid to make a bet on things improving. It seems like people can make a bet that things will always get worse. Because, I mean, what's the downside? If you say things are going to be terrible and they're terrible, you look like a prophet. (laughs) If you say things are going to be great and you are wrong, you look like an idiot. Back to the, it's all fear. A long time ago, you said something, I don't know if you wrote it in one of your letters or not. It used to be one of your beliefs. I don't know if it's still one of your beliefs. Where you had said, I would be just fine with everybody knowing everybody else's closing positions for the day. Full transparency, everybody could see every other group, person, not necessarily like an invasion of privacy statement here, but just, you know, in terms of the market, like you could see what positions were at the close. So disregarding whether or not you still believe that, do you think that if we had full transparency on ownership that this tail phenomenon would be any different? It's a good question. I need to think about it. Yeah. I've grown to agree with you on that. In the course of this conversation, I think I've actually been convincing myself that the smile might emerge that what's actually going to happen is option markets are going to start pricing in right tail, in part because, you know, again, we talked about liquidity drought and liquidity flood. Which do you think is more likely, extreme deflation or hyperinflation? I think people would say hyperinflation. Right. And obviously, you know, stock prices are nominal. And we've certainly, I mean, looking around the world, you do see examples of hyperinflation. We haven't seen uh, chronic severe deflation anywhere. I mean, you know, sort of Japan and maybe Switzerland is probably the closest one can get. This is probably a great place to end it. I mean, we're saying that the future will have a smile. <laughs> I like that. Yep. Yep. Right. Now I have to more thoroughly convince myself. <laughs> <laughs> These 25 minutes didn't, weren't quite enough. You know, find the confirming evidence, ignore the contrary evidence. <laughs> Make a Facebook group. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you again, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ask Andy. If you would like to submit a question, please email askandypodcast at gmail.com. Ask Andy is sponsored by Park State Bank. Visit www.parkstatebank.com for all your banking needs.